let's get started. <clears throat> Sorry, I just want to cough. Oh, why do you always have to do that <laughs> every single week? <laughs> just, just that I want to, you know, it's just coughing. So, uh... It's just, you know, I'm just, I'm like Biggie. I'm like, uh, uh, I'm just kind of, um, what's that called? Vocal, vocalizing. Yeah, you You're need like, to like be like kind of hype man in the background. It's like, welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga. And it's like, yeah, like, Bunga or something like that. I can be like Bez. <laughs> the intellectual equivalent of Bez. You're the dancer. You're the dancer of With the, the maracas. Just getting people, you know, getting people ready. Getting people fired up. All right, sorry. Good I'll stuff. Up. All right. <laughs> sort of apocalyptic predictions the Euro organization makes. They're very conservative numbers, that's what we'd say. And actually a lot of the data in the IPCC report, not, not criticizing scientists because they did an incredible job, using pre-industrial levels of data. They're looking at, you know, carbon emissions. They're not looked at factoring feedback loops, things like this. There are, there are climate scientists saying now that we think it's a lot worse. You know, James Hansen, ex-NASA scientist, is saying we're in a planetary emergency. So we're using that language. We're not, we're not trying to use alarmist language. We're listening to what scientists are saying and, and well, using well, language that we feel is appropriate are, to the situation. You are losing alarmist language. You're one of your other other founders said that she thought everybody could be dead with, within several decades, 97%. So, so aren't we in agreement that we it's have It's the 2025 to, target, to, which is the it's, it's keystone of your policy. Principle. It's I mean, a precautionary principle. Just that ask you this. Most homes in this country are heated by gas. Most people cook with gas. The fact is, all of that would have to go in six years for a 2025 target, wouldn't it? All of it. We put a man on the moon before we had the internet and mobile phones. We made an international space station. 16 countries worked together to make this and send the parts into space independently so using math and assemble it in space. If we really wanted to tackle this emergency, Dr. James Hansen, an ex-NASA scientist, calling it a planetary emergency. Lord I, Stern. So no cooking with gas or heating with gas. But it's we've had years 30 years to think of better solutions, and now is the time to act to bring down those emissions. Hello, welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga. Environmental protest seems to be back in a big way, and I'll have to be honest, uh, I'm a little bit surprised that we are doing an episode on this because it seems to be a sort of politics, which I thought we'd left behind. So if you cast your minds back, before Trump and Brexit, the movement of the squares, Occupy, Arab Spring, even before uh, the global financial crisis, a lot of oppositional politics and protest in the West was green. Uh, the last major event in this sort of wave seems to have been 2009's ca Camp for Climate Action in the UK around the G20 summit then. And yet this year, seemingly out of nowhere, two related environmental protests have emerged, Extinction Rebellion and the climate crisis. And the figurehead of the latter, uh, Greta Thunberg, who seems to be endlessly discussed and memed um, <clears throat> and with uh, a lot of flame wars between her haters and her lovers. It's a bit of a strange state of affairs because it seemed to have been a politics that we had left behind. 
For me, it recalls very much the protests of the 2000s, though arguably dialed up a notch. So one of the founders of Extinction Rebellion, Roger Hallam, who actually studied for a PhD in civil disobedience, uh, trying to understand what kinds of actions promoted change, said in a recent interview on the BBC, uh, when it was suggested to him that Extinction Rebellion was a howl of rage, that, and here I quote, when people go through depression and rage, they come out the other side and decide to do things. So clearly he wants to provoke an emotional reaction. It's obviously an alarmist sort of politics. But the reality of climate change is pretty serious. And the political incoherence of our times and the utter uselessness of political elites means that action is indeed needed. So what we want to do here is take a sober look at the claims and actions of Extinction Rebellion and uh, the strike for climate action. And as we always strive to do, to place these sorts of politics in their historical context. We're going to record further episodes after this one in the coming weeks on environmental questions, looking at eco-fascism and far-right terrorism, as well as at the burning of the Amazon and conflicts in and over that territory. But what we're going to do today is look at these forms of environmental protests, and we are very delighted to have back Lee Phillips, who's a science journalist and the author of Austerity, Ecology, and the Collapse of Born Addicts. We discussed that with him back in episode I don't know, 14, 15, something like that. It was way back at the beginning. And more recently, uh, he's the author of The People's Republic of Walmart, which uh, we discussed uh, with him and his co-author, Michal Rosarski, uh, which was the first of our trilogy on the Ubermensch of Capital, which I'd highly recommend uh, you check out if you don't know it and haven't heard it yet. All right, uh, let's get started. Lee, hi, how's it going? Not bad. How are you doing? Very well, a little bit uh, bunged up, so sorry to listeners if this sounds a little bit nasal, more nasal than you'd than anyone would Bunga, bunga, bunged up. Bung, exactly, bunga, You bunga, also bunga. have to apologize. You have to apologize for that joke. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah, no, <laughs> that just that should be written in. That should be like a proviso that we start every episode off with. Um, all right, so let's get started. I think for, first it might be worth to do a little bit of ground clearing before we talk about uh, Extinction Rebellion's claims. Because there's a lot of terms that float around now, which uh, don't seem to have been around maybe a decade ago. There's been a lot of, in, in fact, a lot of kind of terminological uh, fluctuations and adaptations over the course of green politics history. Even with just regard to climate change, you know, which we used to discuss as global warming, uh, then it became climate chaos. Today we talk about climate emergency or ecocide or ecological crisis or now even extinction. So maybe, Lee, first of all, could you tell us what you think about these different terms or the terms that we should even be using to discuss these matters? Well, it's interesting. Um, I mean, I think that there's... I, I understand why people might want to be using... Um, um, more extreme language to to provoke uh, a response or in a um, sort of popularizing manner. Uh, but in terms of the um, the science itself, that's these are not work, uh, terms that researchers use. Uh, global warming is, is sufficient. I think um, to some extent it, it might be a case that um, as with other other areas, there's a sort of a linguistic uh, mission creep where the existing term. Uh, doesn't seem to have had sufficient impact, um, hasn't moved uh, the dial, hasn't pushed the needle. So maybe if we use a more extreme language, uh, then that will actually actually change things. So in a, in a similar way to how, you know, everyday racism, which is already bad enough, is now white supremacy. 
and sort of what used to be de uh, described as white su supremacy, you know, KKK or neo-Nazis, there's, there's no sort of word for them anymore. Or um, um, everything is, uh, you know, already very bad, genuinely uh, terrible uh, misogyny is now patriarchy. And so, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia or, um, um, you know, certain communities in, in Israel or in New York, that, which are genuine patriarchies, um, um, we don't have a word to describe for those. And I think, you know, with, with, with this, uh, there's been a similar sort of uh, linguistic mission creep, sort of ratcheting up. And so we, we now you, we hear phrases like um, environmental collapse, ecological collapse, uh, planetary destruction, killing the planet, climate breakdown. And, you know, there was that book by um, David uh, Wallace Wells, uh, The Uninhabitable Earth. And uh, all of these are not grounded in, in, in what the, the research says. These are, these are add-ons. These are... Um, it's already bad enough. We don't need to. We don't need to exaggerate. I would say. I think it's. I think that's. But there. It's a problem. They're political terms. I mean. So, um, I mean, should we should we derive the contours of um, appropriate political discourse from the science? I mean, that doesn't seem to me to follow. No, I, I would agree with that. that scientists uh, describe what is. They don't describe what uh, what ought uh, happen. And so it is up to us to. Um, outside of science to uh, to decide what we do in response to the findings i yeah i would agree with that i mean i think the uh, the use um the regular use by uh, by these activists to say the science tells us we ha the science doesn't tell us anything about what we have to right. do or yeah. have to not yeah. do yeah yeah i suppose they just um uh, just the way in which you initially framed it sounded as if um the problem was that it was political language that wasn't properly moored in the science and that there would be a more appropriate language derived from the uh, No, I mean, I, 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 my problem is, well, one is I do think it exaggerates the, uh, the scale of the problem. And I think there's, there's political fallout from, from, from exaggeration, from alarmism. Um, uh, that's the first problem. The second problem is that the uh, the activists are saying the science says that we're in uh, that we're in process of ecological collapse. No, what's happening, which is very bad. It is bad enough already. Is that we're rapidly moving out of a um, about you know a ten thousand, twelve thousand year um, sort of Goldilocks uh, zone of um, uh, atmospheric concentration of of, of, of of carbon dioxide, which has an impact on, on temperature, uh, average global temperature, which again is the average temperature, more or less, that we have enjoyed for um, the last 10,000, 12,000 years. That's actually rare. Um, that set of conditions is actually rare in terms of geological time. But, as, but for us humans, uh, that's all that we've ever known. Our entire civilization grew up within this period. So um, the, the the challenge before us is to try to maintain these optimum conditions or even to optimize those conditions for uh, for humanity. There's no sort of natural set of temperatures for the Earth. The Earth has had much higher temperatures uh, than, 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 the, than the worst of what uh, could be predicted um, in terms of um, uh, so the upper end of, of projections of, of climate change. Uh, the, the planet will be fine. The, the idea that uh, we're killing the planet or the, uh, the uh, life on Earth um, is, um, is, is, is about to be eradicated by humans. It's not true at all. The, what, uh, what there is a danger is that uh, the set of conditions that allow, uh, allow us to flourish 
are under threat. And we don't want that. I mean, it's, but that's effectively a, a deeply anthropocentric perspective saying that the reason that we are do, we are engaged in preventing climate change is because we don't want, we want to optimize the situation, the set of conditions for humans. Um, the irony is that um, much of the environmental movement, um, certainly deep ecologists, uh, want us to leap out of uh, an anthropocentric mindset. I'm, I, at that point, it makes no sense. At that point, there really literally doesn't, it doesn't matter what um, uh, ecological uh, changes happen, what, um, uh, climate changes happen if one takes a biocentric perspective yeah i mean i would i think i would um go further um with respect to the language and i think it's um it's not just the kind of inflation and the dangers of alarmism but also i think it's deeply um i mean if we actually take seriously what they propose with the specific use of terms that um, the idea that it's possible to motivate a progressive politics by um, suggesting that there's a you know um, like the idea of climate emergency, and classically you know the state of emergency something yeah. associated with um, extreme and authoritarian visions of politics where um, all uh, you know forms of representation, deliberation, discussion have to be short-circuited, move immediately to executive power in order to enforce decisions that are um, required by the community without any attempt to um, negotiate or mediate competing interests and um, different social groups, which is exactly you know which is exactly in fact what is needed to deal with um, the problems of the climate is precisely that we do need to discuss, like you say, um, the idea of what it means to optimize conditions for humanity, um, to perpetuate um, the conditions that we need for human flourishing, what human flourishing looks like. All of those things can't be left to um, executive fiat to decide. So, you know, the climate emergency, I mean, if we take it, you know, so, I mean, on the one hand, they kind of, um, the Extinction Rebellion crowd kind of say, oh, no, no, we don't really mean this. It's only to kind of motivate action. On the other hand, you know, if we, they want us to take them seriously, it's also deeply sinister implications of the language as well. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's more than just um, creep. I mean, it's also creepy. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh -huh. the, um, yeah. Uh, two things I would say to that. Uh, the first is that um, uh, in a, one of the reasons that that language is, is problematic is that um, just sort of... A simpler level is that um, it is very easy uh, for, let's say, climate skeptics or conservatives. Um, um, I don't like to use the term climate denial because I think that there's a sort of a resonance there with Holocaust denial, and I don't think that I don't want to put those on the same level, uh, moral level, that somebody who, however incorrect I may feel that they are with respect to to climate change, um, I don't I don't want to put them in the same basket as as neo-Nazis to deny the, 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 the murder of six million Jews. Um, I think that's it's a, it's a deeply more, more morally problematic um, equivalence there. Um, so nevertheless, there are such people as, as climate skeptics and conservatives who, who, who critique um, the, the reality of anthropogenic global warming. And um, if, if the advocates for um, radical climate action um, are playing fast and loose with what science is saying, it's very easy for those uh, conservatives, for those climate skeptics to say, well, this is not what the science says. Um, uh, you're making this up. 
and, and that allows them to say to other people uh, convincingly that these people don't know what they're talking about. They say that they support science, but they don't. Uh, they don't know what they're, uh, they're, they're, there's no relation there. It's, it's very easy to under, when you exaggerate and when you misrepresent what is said in the Intergovernmental Plan on Climate Change Reports or other, uh, um, uh, other, other uh, papers in literature, um, you can undermine your position. Do you remember when, I think it was last year, um, there was an early uh, snowfall somewhere in, in, the, uh, in the South, in the US South, and uh, Donald Trump yeah. said, ha ha, look at this, it's uh, so much for global warming, uh, there's snows in, uh, in October, early October, and everybody and their dog rightly, uh, you know, in terms of climate, uh, climate science and climate activists uh, on Twitter and other you know, social media platforms said, Duh, it's about the trend. It's not, we can't say about any one in particular uh, individual um, 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 uh, weather event uh, that this now disproves um, uh, the reality of anthropogenic global warming. But then, of course, they do exactly the same thing that they immediately will describe um, a, um, um, any particular forest fire, any particular uh, hurricane as caused by climate change. There's sort of reasons why this isn't even a very good. Uh, without even waiting for the uh, the assessment of, of you know by attribution studies uh, scientists, um, um, and they will usually say uh, that there is a um, what you want to be saying is uh, what role did climate change play in this in terms of um, its increase in intensity or its um, how does it compare uh, with this with this likelihood uh, historically rather than a simple sort of causational um, um, a relationship there. So it's even just a bad question to be asking, did climate change cause this? But nevertheless, uh, the immediate assumption of, uh, that climate caused X, Y, Z um, um, extreme weather event um, is exactly the same um, uh, process of ignoring overall trends, which is what we care about, not individual events, that uh, Donald Trump did with that, uh, with that you know, light dusting of snow in, in the US South in, in October. So that's sort of the first very basic problem with the alarmism, that it undermines your, uh, your reliability um, and then undermines the politic that you want to engage in. The second thing is that there is a lot of uh, psychological research that suggests that um, alarmism uh, on the scale of sort of end of the world um, uh, catastrophism, people get turned off and say, "Well, might as well party it up. Uh, there's nothing we can do," and they just they they tune right. out. Yeah, and yeah, then, I think. Sorry, yeah. sorry to interrupt, but I think because we are going to delve a little bit deeper into the, that question of alarmism, but I think that might be some really good ground clearing just there to get us started off sure. with. I, did I also like the. I also. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead if you want to add. No, because I, I thought Phil's point about the. Uh, democracy is really, really important. Um, and this is even more serious than the other two uh, points that I just raised there, which is that, you know, James Lovelock, the, you know, hallowed um, uh, scientist just turned 100, the uh, uh, inventor of the conception of Gaia, um, very much beloved figure within the environmental community, and for, you know, in many respects for good reasons. Um, and there was an interview that he did in The Guardian a few years ago, where he he said that uh, democracy does not work with respect to solving the climate uh, crisis and other ecological problems. Um, what we need is uh, some sort of strongman to fix, a global strongman to fix the problem. And so this goes precisely to what Phil was saying, uh, that there is the, the uh, sort of turn away from democracy to, uh, because we can't trust the people to, to vote the right way. 
Um, that doesn't seem to be working. Um, so we need somebody, an expert, a strongman expert to come in and clear the decks. Now that's just one person, but then if you look at um, um, ex Extinction Rebellion and their set of demands, now to some extent I can't really, you know, I was a climate act, I was an environmental activist for many years. I even was a member of uh, Earth First. So I, you know, I, I certainly am not critical of of uh, taking direct action when it's necessary. My worry is more with respect to one of the particular demands that they have, which is around citizens' assemblies. That the if you go to the extension, yeah, Rebellion, I'm sorry, Lee. I'm going to have to yeah. interrupt you because we are going to get onto this. Oh, sorry. Uh, in a little bit more depth. So I did want to actually just uh, before we get onto that, just set out a little bit what uh, these specific groups' demands are, because I think it might be worth starting from the kind of concrete politics proposed by these specific movements that have emerged now. Um, because then I think later on we can go on to contrast them to perhaps earlier waves of environmental movements, as well as to talk about the relationship between these and other forms of uh, other forms of politics, other forms of liberal social movements as well. Uh, I think it's interesting you point out the alarmism at the beginning and made, uh, a, made a connection between that and other forms of rhetorical amplification that you see today around racism and sexism, for example, where, as you say, you know, you call um, some sort of everyday misogyny, you call that patriarchy, then what do you call Saudi Arabia? Yeah, um, yeah. So I think it's worth, it's nice that you made that connection. We do want to return toward to return to that towards the end of this. Um, but just to kind of get a little bit more concrete here before we go into the deeper analysis. So Extinction Rebellion, to take that... Um, I don't even know what to call it, really. I, I mean, I suppose it's a movement. We'll use that uh, as as a sort of placeholder, though you might, if you want to question that uh, that sort of terminology, that categorization, feel free to do so. So Extinction Rebellion makes kind of three claims. One, tell the truth. Two, act now. Three, beyond politics. Yeah. So starting off, let, let's just go through them uh, one by one. So firstly, tell the truth. What is that <laughs> as a sort of demand? I mean, obviously, everybody wants politicians to tell the truth. That would be good. But it's also uh, what, sort of a bit of a naive sort of uh, demand to make when, if you live in the world, you realize that politicians often lie. That's how yeah. politics works. So, you know, to start off with, what does that sort of say to you? Well, specifically, they, when they say uh, tell the truth, they want uh, governments to declare a climate emergency. Now, the irony is that uh, since um, Extinction Rebellion first popped up, a number of different jurisdictions have now actually declared a climate emergency. Okay, great, but nothing's changed really in terms of um, policy. So it is, I think you're right, it's a very naive position. Um, ah, okay, it's, that's, a, that's a demand that politicians can easily meet. And there's something a bit strange about how their, you know, their core, their, their very first demand tell the truth about the, what the science is saying about the state of the planet. And then the very first thing that they do is lie about the state of the planet. I think uh, saying that, you know, six billion people are going to die. Well, I think That's they're demanding true. that politicians tell the truth, not saying that they have to tell the truth. So it's, it's, <laughs> it's consistent in, in that sense. Um, but with the, with respect to the, the acting now, what is the, if, if truth is the, is the pre-action condition, what's the action they're, they're demanding? So they want, um, all greenhouse gas emissions to be uh, to be uh, cut to net zero um, by 2025, so within five years. And this is um, how how plausible um, in your 
in, in, in your judgment? Not in any way, not in any way. Um, and once again, um, for all of their um, discussion about how we need to respect the science with a capital S, and this is what scientists are saying, if we do, um, what the, the, the most recent Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report in uh, 2018, uh, a special report on um, what it would take to, um, to, uh, to keep within 1.5 degrees of warming above um, historic, sort of pre-industrial levels, uh, which is the sort of more ambitious uh, guardrail uh, adopted uh, within the, the Paris, Paris Agreement in 2015. Uh, the sort of the, the hard uh, boundary, the hard guardrail is two degrees of warming. Um, and this isn't, again, th this report doesn't say what people should do. It, it was um, basically politicians within the, the, the UNF triples, the UN uh, Framework Convention on Climate Change, um, climate diplomacy process, asked the researchers with, through the, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change to come up with a special report to explain, look at different possible pathways. If we decided to do to to go for 1.5 degrees, what would it take? What were what would some ways of this? Um, 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 what would some ways pathways look like? Um, what would be the impacts of uh, 1.5 degrees of warming? What is the latest science saying on that compared to the impacts of of two degrees? And in terms of cutting. Um, uh, emissions. If we wanted to stay within 1.5 degrees globally, we would have to cut emissions by 45% uh, by 2030 to stay within 1.5 degrees and to net zero by 2050. So I don't know where they're getting this 2025 from. Is it, nobody, nobody's saying this. Is it a is is is, is it kind of a, a a more radical demand than is needed to? Yeah, and absolutely. obviously shift the shift the conversation to um, a more a more sort of practical uh, middle ground. I mean that, that that's that's what it seems. It, it, but it's deep. It's deeply cynical because I mean, um, if that's the justification, so you know, this is what the kind of um, rough consensus is that Lee said to um, 2030, 2050, let's do something, um, let's suggest something which is more extreme in order to rouse people up and to get them going, even though we don't ourselves believe that it's possible, but we cynically need to inflate um, people's, um, you know, in instinct for action. Yeah. Um, I mean, deep, you know, it's a deeply cynical, manipulative view of politics um, and also paternalistic as well. You know, people are children and need to be pushed and prodded into the right direction because reason is, is insufficient to appeal to their, um, to their interests. To refer to the clip that our listeners will have heard at the beginning there, which was an uh, Extinction Rebellion spokesperson being interviewed on the BBC, you know, that latter bit, they spoke of ambition there. So when they were questioned by Andrew Neil. Um, about whether this is plausible, about the claim of, of um, <clears throat> becoming uh, of net zero emissions by 2025. They said, well, you know, man put, uh, we put man on the moon without computers, um, making reference to other great technological leaps, which, okay, kind of gets my juices flowing. But then you realize it's this, um, you know, th this completely unhinged degree of ambition in pursuit of something which can only be austerity. 
I mean, you know, I think this is what you were going to get at as well, that to achieve that aim, you'd need to to kind of cut out, as as Andrew Neil says, even in that interview, you'd have to like stop all people using gas stoves it, immediately. It's basically like imagine if all of uh, humanity's productive power were were uh, directed towards austerity. Just imagine all the things that we could do if if, if we uh, if we had that concerted effort. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, Lee. Yeah, the, I mean, the, no, no, it's it's fine. I mean, it, it, the irony is, of course, that uh, on the the natural gas front, uh, that's actually one of the easier things to uh, uh, to, to 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 resolve there. Um, but uh, um, in terms of, I, I mean, I would be a little bit more generous to them. I think. Well, perhaps I'm going to be more generous to the the rank and file. Let's say the young people who are infused and they're you know they're just getting involved in politics. I don't exactly. I don't. I would not put the same uh, level of uh, of demand of um, of precision and uh, accuracy to sixteen year and seventeen year olds that I would to uh, you know twenty seven, thirty, thirty five, forty year olds. And certainly, Roger Hallam, who's I don't know. I think he's in his fifties or sixties. I would ex- so perhaps there's a little bit more cynicism in the leadership there. But I think if anything, it's more a sort of naivete in the sense that. Um, there is a huge gap between the uh, the scale of the radicalization and demands, um, and um, in, and the policies that would be, be able to achieve those things. They don't often they don't sort of describe what those policies are, or if they do, in the case of uh, things like some of the Green New Deals, which I actually support as a concept. Um, uh, the the policies that they that they sort of lay out, if they do lay out, and ex, uh, the extin- an extinction rebellion is not laying out any particular policies, um, they tend to be one either counterproductive or um, insufficiently ambitious. In that, uh, if we even if we did achieve what um, uh, what they've laid out, to some extent, some of them wouldn't achieve uh, emissions reductions. Uh, that is all. The, the rate of emissions reduction is already happening in a place like Britain, where actually the emissions reduction rate is is pretty impressive compared to some uh, some other countries. Um, um, so there's yeah, there's this significant, and part of it comes down to the fact that I think, and this is one of the problems, is that the um, the movement is very much led by NGO activists. Um, uh, non-governmental uh, organization activists, people who've gone through uh, university or college and studied the humanities. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, that absolutely has to be part of the, uh, <laughs> the, the conversation. But that are, despite the fact that they're talking about a very, very technical and complicated scientific issue, they aren't, uh, and certainly complicated in terms of engineering and energy systems policies, absolutely. They often aren't very aware of, of energy systems. Now, they are they're often very aren't aware of 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 of, of the policies. The you know I, I just recently was in a sort of bit of a an argument with people who are campaigning against campaign uh, that people should stop flying or reduce uh, flying, and consistently a number of them said that there's no possible way, there's no technology, no solution on the horizon for clean aviation, and that's just not true. I mean, they simply don't, didn't. Know that there are there are there are, there are possibilities. I mean, some of them for for short haul um, um, uh, aviation, they're coming on stream literally this uh, this season. Like the very first commercial um, airline in British Columbia, where I live, uh, Harbor Air, they are uh, starting switching their their entire fleet uh, to electric um, drop in uh, engines. 
Um, now that's not viable for long haul um, for a range of different uh, reasons. But so they didn't even know. Like the, some of this is actually already happening. Um, the with with long haul, it's 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 much more difficult. And uh, but it's but still, there's about you know a dozen different possible options. I mean, there's some that I think are more realistic than other ones. But they literally didn't know that these were were on the table. They literally didn't know that uh, it's sort of the the the, the cost. Uh, the cost of these, or the, uh, or what they would. Whenever I mention uh, synthetic uh, hydrocarbons, they immediately thought that I was talking about biofuels. When, so there's a lot of confusion as well in terms of um, policies. Um, they really, really. Is that also? Let me. Sorry. Let me ask yeah. something. Is that, is that, is, is that a is that a? No, I was just. I just wanted to ask. Take the opportunity to, to ask whether you see that as being of a piece with a certain resistance towards what they see as technical fixes. So yes, absolutely. Is there yeah. ignorant, are they ignorant of these things, perhaps just because they're dismissive of it? They want this kind of radical action, um, but aren't interested in, in actual concrete, useful solutions. Um, which I think it's weird also because that radicalism doesn't apply to any kind of social radicalism. I mean, they're not yeah. really talking about any different form of social organization either. So it is an ambiguous sort of creature. Well, I mean, there's a spectrum there. I mean, I don't want to uh, uh, paint them all with the same brush. Um, um, some of them um, are much more familiar with different options um, than other ones. Uh, but it's interesting that the more that people begin to pay attention to any energy systems uh, uh, policy discussions, the more that they begin to move away from some of these uh, these more um, uh, radical positions and they begin to say, okay, so this is what we need to... I, I, the irony, of course, of all of this is that um, uh, things like a, a you know a new global fleet of um, uh, of, of, of 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 nuclear reactors, um, whether conventional or moving uh, forward with next generation uh, small modular reactors or something along those lines, because of the upfront capital costs with conventional, um, we basically do need a, a significant, and that means that um, market actors are very unattracted to uh, to uh, to. Uh, to, to reactors, um, even though over the lifetime of, of, of these reactors, uh, the energy that we get from them is incredibly cheap, incredibly competitive. So the irony is that there is, there's absolutely a very good argument uh, for why uh, neoliberalism is very ill-suited to solving climate change, that we do need at a very minimum a sort of um, fairly muscular social democracy uh, and uh, in interventionist industrial policy sort of uh, approach to to solve some of these issues so we do actually need some quite radical re reorganization of uh, of of our politics and economics to, uh, to to solve this but they're not pushing for that sort of stuff uh, the um the the irony is that when you put forward what would, what I've just said, which sounds like quite a radical uh, position to any sort of neoliberal, even you know, a, a sort of centrist U.S. Democrat or a Blairite, oh, everything has to be left up to the market. Uh, um, the response from a lot of these activists is that, oh, this is just a techno fix, and you're basically saying nothing needs to change in order to solve the problem. You know, I'm a socialist. I, I genuinely would like to see an end to capitalism entirety in its entirety um, uh, in the in, in the long term. Uh, but the reality is that it, it it's, we don't need um, um, you know revolutionary socialism in order to solve solve the problem. We do need some fairly heavy lifting in terms of a shift away from uh, neoliberal business as usual. 
Um, but I find it interesting there. In I mean, the, state in, capitalism would do, you know. <laughs> they, yes, it, it would actually, yeah. Um, the, in fact, that the, a good example, of, the best example of, um, of that would be France um, in the 1970s and 1980s. Uh, through their nuclearization of their electricity grid, they didn't achieve it 100%, but it's you know about 70, 70, 80% uh, nuclearized. Um, that was the uh, the fastest uh, rate of decline in carbon intensity of an uh, energy system ever ha happening ever in the world. And the reason that they were able to to achieve that as uh, all analysts of the uh, the French nuclearization program say. Um, is that basically this was the, the sort of last gasp of uh, post-war um, um, etatisme, um, it was a grand projet d'etat uh, that was viable um, um, before the, sort of, uh, the, the neoliberal revolution and the, uh, where there was a very centralized um, bringing together of, of, of expertise and the state just saying uh, it's going to be this design and this design and every, you know, we're just going to build these out over this period and it doesn't matter what it's going to cost, we're just going to do this. Um, that came to an end in the sort of by the late 1980s with uh, um, European energy system uh, liberalization. The one of the reasons that France wasn't able to go 100% was that they were blocked basically by um, uh, by European uh, energy uh, liberalization. So the anyway, sorry, I'm, I'm babbling here a little bit, but basically the, the no, no, but that's a really good illustration. That's a really good illustration. But I did want to actually get back to the actual protest movements yeah. themselves uh, before we explore the the maybe what to do about climate change a little bit further towards the end. Maybe a way of doing this because uh, we looked at the kind of Extinction Rebellion three claims of tell the truth, act now, and beyond. Well, we politics. haven't we haven't looked at the we, we, but we need to do. I think that's we need probably to do a little bit. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, we're going to do that in just a little bit because I think it might be worth just in terms of getting us back to what these protest movements are actually like contrasting Extinction Rebellion with Climate Strike and its right. parent organizations like 350.org, just so we have that uh, so we have that kind of in our pockets already. Um, sure. You see kind of, do you see Climate Strike as potentially a bit more moderate than Extinction Rebellion? How would you distinguish the two? I mean, it's more moderate in its, um, uh, in its form of uh, activism in that uh, there's no direct action taking place at the moment. Um, it allows everybody to participate in it fairly straightforward. I mean, I did. I, I went to two global climate strike actions in in, in my hometown. Um, the first one was, you know, fairly small, maybe 500 people. The second was like maybe 5,000. And for for a small size city like Victoria, where I live, that was that was not insignificant. It was probably the biggest protest I've seen in the city in a number of years. And around the world. Um, there were something like 4,500 demonstrations globally in 150 different countries. And the very first of the, the strikes in September, there were some 4 million people uh, estimated participating internationally and another 2 million a week later. So this is not insignificant. It's, it's it, you know, 800,000 people in Montreal. And Montreal is, is not a very large, I mean, it's a medium-sized city, so it's a city, but, it, you know, that's that's a... Um, it's not 
insignificant what's happening here. I think where um, X, XR or Extinction Rebellion is, there have been some um, actions internationally, even in Vancouver um, in the last week, but there are much, much smaller number of people participating compared to the global climate strike because you're engaging in direct action. And the very purpose of it is to get arrested. So, you know, if you are from sort of an immigrant community or you're work, you know, you've got a lot of work, uh, you've got family to take care of, you can't, you know, going to jail is not <laughs> uh, sort of viable. It's much more exclusive sort of. Um, it's it's a yoga retreat, as, as they like to say. <laughs> If if yeah, if listeners haven't seen this, they uh, I think Extinction Rebellion put out a leaflet advising uh, how their members or you know their participants what to do if you get arrested and you go to jail. And it, what, it starts off with like bring a good book. You know we suggest such and such books. Uh, make sure you exercise, do some breathing exercises, and so on. Um, I mean that's I mean there's a way that we can be sort of sneering as well at the same time. I mean my problem with some of the things with um, Extinction Rebellion are around this tell tell the truth stuff where they're not telling the truth. Um, the act now, the, the 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 demand for 2025 is just it's it, it's not realistic, um, and actually be dangerous at all, and and some problems with their 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 beyond politics, which we'll talk about in a second. But in terms of direct action or going to jail, you know, yeah, not everybody can participate in that, but there's a grand tradition um, on the left um, oh, for sure. yeah. of uh, people going to jail for for justice. Um, I have myself. Um, there's absolutely no way uh, that um, I would ever critique anybody for engaging in direct action that's peaceful. Um, um, I do, I do have some issues around some suggestions that they might have might have uh, uh, wanted to engage in drone, um, uh, you know, blocking um, Heathrow with drones, and we don't, we still don't know who was responsible for the the drone, um, I guess, attack on, I think it was Gatwick. Uh, last Christmas, um, it, might, it might still have been the police. It might, it might, it still might have yeah, been the police who knows? But, so, but if that is them, I would be very strongly opposed to that. I think that's incredibly dangerous um, and threatening to human life. Um, uh, to, but at the moment, we from what they're doing is just direct action. I don't really have a, a problem with with that. It's oh, no, it, and it's, I, I don't. I don't think I wasn't trying to drive at the yeah. idea that direct action is problematic or any of the specific tactics in and of themselves are problematic, but that goes for all tactics they can't be really analyzed outside of looking at what the overall strategy is exactly and and this is where you get into the a little bit more problematic things that or, or rather you know things like treating prison as a as a yoga retreat yes is a little bit oblivious to certain social oh, realities my god yeah so you know and that's what what was particularly offensive about it oh I did, yeah um, absolutely so maybe we should move on to the post politics the beyond politics of uh, both extinction rebellion and climate strike, because they try to position themselves as, uh, you know, as presenting the only possible solution and something that needs to be immediately adopted without too much, uh, too much discussion, without too much dissension. And I think the way that they're organized as well doesn't particularly encourage internal dissension within the organizations, nor uh, really debate between those organizations and others in terms of how to actually pursue concrete action on climate change. Yeah, and I think we get a hint of that from the specificity of what's included in this beyond politics demand, the third the third of Extinction Rebellion's demand, um, which is that um, basically they are frustrated with democracy. Democracy does, um, parliament is, um, is, is beyond hope. Uh, what we need is instead a citizens assembly. 
um, where uh, to take decisions instead. And, um, or that they would craft, that the citizens assembly would craft what is to, to be done and then um, uh, parliament would just follow what the citizens assembly has, has decided. Now, part of, you know, this is, to some extent, this is kind of interesting in that um, uh, what they're drawing on here is the idea of sortition or where you, like a, mm. like a jury for a trial, uh, where you assume that every human, uh, an adult human is capable, as capable of governing ourselves as, as, as any so-called experts or leaders. And I, as a Democrat and a civil libertarian and as a, somebody who's critical of the state, I, I that's... Um, just you know, very attractive. But it really, but the 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 devil is really in the details here, in that this form of sortition um, in now pushes a lot of uh, gives gives over a lot of power to the people who organize that citizens assembly. Um, if you go to the website, the the Extinction Rebellion website, you see that how this would be set up, and they look to things like the citizens assembly in Ireland with respect to abortion, and um, uh, same-sex marriage, and there's some interesting things there. Uh, but um, what the language that they use on, on the website is that the citizens' assembly people will be drawn from across the country uh, randomly, and then they quote will hear balanced information from experts and those most affected uh, by the emergency, with the aid of professional facilitators run by non-governmental organizations under ind independent oversight. <laughs> cut through party politics. So basically what we're saying they're saying there is that we will uh, decide what information uh, this citizens assembly is able to consider. So instead of a series of people um, in the case of Ireland or for example in, in South Korea, the citizens assembly there that, were, that was tasked with assessing whether they would move ahead with continuing to build uh, a series of nuclear plans. Um, where um, the civil servants servicing the Citizens Assembly um, pulled from all sorts of different um, information venues and then left people to decide themselves. This would be a very, very corralled uh, bit of information um, d decided by the NGOs and these professional facilitators so that you know, they basically they will tell people what to do. So this is... Going back to Phil's, Phil's argument um, previously, and also um, where he was critical of this, um, or James Lovelock's, where he actually, this is exactly what James Lovelock is arguing for, which is that we do an end run around democracy and that there's a series of experts that know what to do. Oh, and those experts happen to be us. Yeah, it's it's worse than that, though, because um, I think, you know, with abortion um, and gay marriage, I mean, those are things which are... Um, Particularly with abortion, I mean, it's something which affects um, potentially everyone to the degree, you know, everybody's um, partner or somebody they know might need to have an abortion, um, at least 50% of the population. Um, whereas with something like climate change, you know, there are distinctive constituencies and groups whose um, will be affected differently or who um, have different resources or different needs or belong to different industries. Um, and all sorts, you know, in all sorts of ways, um, that is much more complex than the much more basic issue, such as should we have abortion or not? Um, and yes, mediating all of those interests, I think, is something which re precisely requires representative politics and can't be resolved yes. by yeah. a citizens' assembly. Yeah, I mean, that's that's always the problem with sortition, is that it's a, it's the last um, kind of resort 
of political movements which have which are anti-majoritarian yes. because they look to short circuit any representative processes and that's why it's always it, it was one of the reasons why sortition has come back on the agenda since 2016 in a in a in a whole range of uh, formats citizens juries being being only one of them and it just ends up being a completely managed it's a it's a it's something that the pmc loves because it's like oh it's like a focus group we can just have focus group democracy and we can we can make sure that people have a, a steered and led towards the the actually the correct outcome because it's a turning turning away from majoritarian need to, the majoritarian need to convince a whole group of people mobilize them catalyze them behind a, behind a full set of um of, of policies which yeah i mean it's easy to dismiss it but you should i think i, think, I, think, I feel like we should dismiss it i think it, but it's interesting though because I, I i do like proposals for sortition because they serve as a useful thought experiment insofar as they expose the why it's bad well they, they no because they also expose the limitations of contemporary representative democracy for precisely for its lack of representation precisely for its empowering of establishment it establishment or established powers in society uh, who will can kind of short circuit the the representative and democratic process so i think it's useful in that in in, in the way that lee precisely said which it proposes any one of us could rule any any one individual could rule and it's chosen completely at random but it, it's, yeah, but we it, don't want I, any I one a, individual to rule. We want to rule collectively. No, no, yeah, but it could be you, you form an assembly by sortition. So mm. it, it does. But the interesting thing is that um, ex, ex, <laughs> the, the um, Extinction Rebellion didn't have the courage of their conviction with sortition because they also, as well as all the other um, provisos that they put in place, um, as Lee has just explained, they also want demographic quotas to make sure that it's fully representative, which yeah, is yeah. kind of against the idea of sortition. Sortition, yes. Because, yeah, because it, already, it already presupposes it presupposes that there are certain defined groups in society that need to be represented. The whole point of sortition is that, no, we are entirely a, a mass of people who are all, as individuals, equal to one another. So you don't have quotas. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of an interesting uh, contradiction there. And I think it, it does expose the their the lack of courage of their convictions in, in presenting themselves as it's being an in, it's an democratic. It's an interesting conversation around sortition. If we if we were to, let's say, tomorrow replace uh, the UK Parliament uh, or the Canadian Parliament or the US Congress with sortition for all subjects, I mean, I'd be interested in having a conversation about that. That's that sound. There's some you know, every cook can govern um, sort of aspect uh, to that. And I think that uh, juries that do exist in terms of um, the um, um, uh, the legal system, the, the, the Anglophone legal system, I think are, are it's superb and I think need to be defended. It's um, at the same time, even if that were to happen, um, suddenly the people who have significant power uh, shift from being, um, let's say, the... Um, uh, the MPs or um, uh, the lobbyists, those MPs, to the civil service that services that uh, those those assembly members in the the citizens assembly. Um, so you, even though it seems at first glance like it's going to be more democratic, you do suddenly shift over to uh, uh, giving uh, enormous power to those people who decide what information the jury, uh, the citizens jury, um, uh, uh, receive. Now, maybe that's something that can be resolved. I don't know. That's, that's an interesting conversation. But what we're doing here with, with the, the specific version of sortition that's proposed by Extinction Rebellion is uh, it, 
is it basically accepting that the uh, that's a set of civil servants that service the uh, the assembly members, citizens assembly members, uh, do have enormous power, and uh, they will be us. So it is an assertion of a dictatorship in this case. It's a very explicit um, uh, authoritarian um, uh, maneuver under the guise of having a more democratic, more um, uh, uh, yeah, under the guise of a more democratic system like sortition. It's actually. Uh, deeply undemocratic what they're proposing. Yeah, which I think go, is in line with their radicalism, which is something I mentioned earlier, which they are not very interested in, in techno fixes. They want radical immediate action, which yeah. is very severe, pretty much unachievable or achievable only with the most drastic uh, and, and quite violent means, really. Uh, and yet there's no real questioning of social organization at the same time. So the radicalism uh, see, it only seems to apply to the realm of state action and not to yeah. society itself. Right. So I, I don't know if you want to comment on that, but I mean, I think that they in which which also relates to something which I wanted to touch on, which is the, their relationship to the radical left, such as it is that they don't seem to. I mean, at least I get the impression that they see the radical left as sort of too political and too obstructionistic, too interested in social change, questions about social organization, revolution, what have you, and that they are focused merely on climate action, and that's what needs to happen. Well, um, it's, well, it's, I mean, it's complicated. There's, 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 I mean, we're talking about two amorphous organizational forms, and then in addition, a raft of other organizations and individual activists and conversations so it's hard to so it really does it really does depend in terms of the relationship of these these organizations or uh, or other organizations or activists to the radical left i think what one can say is that there's this i mean roger hallam um you know he talks about he's he simultaneously has talked about you know the the usual cliche that we hear of neither right nor left, but forward kind of like vomitous um, um, banality there. On the other hand, I mean, he was interviewed by um, Owen Jones a few days ago, where he basically said, yeah, yeah, okay, I might be saying that, but really like, you know, come on, I'm a lefty. Um, and uh, so there's a sort of dishonesty there, I think. Um, um, but also, is, I, I, and, and at the same time, there's a lot of the dying radical left organizations, Trotskyist and, and so on and so forth, are jumping on board with this stuff as they do with every new sort of um, uh, mass, mass movement um, and uh, get their you know, fingers stuck in it without any sort of critical analysis. Um, and, you know, historically, I think uh, socialists would have uh, made arguments about how no, climate change is real. There are significant challenges that we face in terms uh, with with other environmental uh, issues. But let's uh, look at this from a sort of a class perspective. Um, what are the contradictions within capitalism that might be um, causing this, such as you know market forces and the 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 incentive structures there uh, to continue to produce a, a commodity that we know is harmful? Um, uh, no, instead it's a uh, the the sort of uh, vague sort of critiques of, of growth, of modernity, 
of um, of humanity, even that the left historic that uh, socialists certainly would have historically critiqued and said, whoa, 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 those are actually quite reactionary positions. I think the the radical left, uh, because they are so weak these days in some um, uh, in many many places that you know traditional Trotskyist organizations are um, what have you uh, that they are. You, doing what we used to describe as adaptationist um, activities where they will adapt their politics to whatever the flavor of the month is and hide their critiques um, or even just pretend that they don't have any critiques or uh, even actually begin to adopt mm. these new positions and try yeah. to suggest that they're still in alignment with their, with their historic Marxist um, uh, positions. So I think exactly. that's- But I think this, yeah. this is why I find these, the emergence of these movements right now in 2019 so perplexing, which is something I referenced in the introduction, that even if you take elements of the socialist left and their, um, you know, kind of kind of approximation to some of these movements mm -hmm. is, as you said, you, you know, they traditionally would be more critical of this sort of stuff. What's mad is that in 2019, thinking surely in the past decade, we've learned enough and have advanced enough a... Um, a sort of materialist understanding of politics, at least have reintroduced a discourse on inequality subsequent to Occupy, uh, to, to uh, also reintroduce a discussion uh, of class, whether it be, you know, Corbyn or even more so Bernie Sanders in the US, that to, to return back to this form of, um, this form of post-politics seems really bizarre, really surprising. And it makes me wonder, you know, is this some sort of retro end of history movement? Have we given up on the openings that we've, that have emerged in the past decade and now we're returning to, to sort of this sort of form of green politics, uh, which dominated the 2000s? No, I, I think, um, I mean, I, I think there's two things to say to that. Uh, the first is that there has been a, a learning. I, I don't think this is the, the same climate movement that exists prior to the global financial crisis. Um, the, um, the conversations around a just transition now, within, um, particularly within the United States and Canada, um, uh, there is an importation of an understanding of class and inequality to some extent there, although it's more often uh, discussed in the abstract than the concrete, and you find that, in, if, if, for example, where um, there's not a lot of uh, conversations by advocates of the Green New Deal, um, which is supposed to be about a just transition, making sure that uh, worker, fossil fuel workers who are affected by the transition will be taken care of appropriately and made sure that there's good jobs for them uh, in the new clean economy. Um, ironically, they're often not actually speaking to the trade unions uh, and workers in those uh, direct uh, in those specific fields. In those areas, so for example, in Maine, now a lot of uh, Green New Deal activists did uh, um, actually go and speak to a number of trade unions um, ahead of drafting their Green New Deal proposal specific to that state. And what's much, what's interesting there is that there's much more amenability, sorry, the, 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 the trade unions are much more amenable to the conception of a Green New Deal than in other regions. And also the Green New Deal set of proposals themselves include a number of arguments or sort of uh, demands that the unions themselves came up with, particularly around things like apprenticeships, which they, uh, in Maine, they, 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 they feel are very, very important in terms of making sure that they're able to make that transition. Um, and um, so, that's a uh, so I would say that it it's not as it's not as simple um, 
argument that it's just a repetition of the professional managerial class or middle class green politics prior to the, um, uh, the global financial crisis, something has changed. When we're talking about just transition, people do have an awareness of that. Um, but it's, it hasn't gone far enough. And I think part of that does come to the fact that it is still overwhelmingly a, a, more of a, a, sort of a middle class phenomenon. Um, um, at the same time, I think we also have to talk about how um, economic frustrations can express themselves in non-clearly class ways or non-clearly economic ways. I think, uh, you know, uh, your recent uh, interview about the Hong Kong protests and how even though the demands of the, the protesters um, are explicitly political and don't and, and try to avoid any conversation about the housing crisis um, in Hong Kong or the fact that people have gone to university and college are sort of downwardly mobile, uh, because if they begin to use that economic uh, language, that uh, that's the language of the, uh, the Communist Party. And uh, so they're explicitly trying to avoid that because that, that's that their enemy. Nevertheless, one can't talk about the Hong Kong protests outside of there being this uh, post-global financial crisis, housing crisis, and, and, and increasing inequality and lack of career opportunities. Um, and I think it's the same thing here, is that, um, that um, even though there's a certainly more of a middle class sort of flavor to, to some of these, these protests, um, I think these are the, many of the same people who participated in, in an, or of the same sort of flavor as the people who would have who either did protest and, and occupy or similar sort of movements. Um, and that there is a sort of um, dislocation of their frustration that, uh, you know, if we can go back to Mark, the philosopher, the late philosopher, Mark Fisher's position or argumentation around what he called um, capitalist realism in uh, suggesting that it is, that it's just so obvious that we can't defeat capitalism that there is no other way uh, other than capitalism. Um, uh, and it's just sort of this, this uh, not merely conscious acceptance that there's no other way, but an unconscious um, acceptance as well. So um, in this case, even as some of them are explicitly using language that is anti-capitalist, they themselves basically have abandoned all faith that the, um, the working class can be an agent of change, that there can actually be any um, um, radical transformations of society in a socialist um, sort of uh, manner, and that instead there is this deus ex machina of nature that will wipe the slate clean, that there's a sort of celebration of, uh, even though they say that they're fighting against this, there's a sort of, this is the, 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 great, um, the great flood that will, clean, that will clean us all and will make everything, that will restart society again. Mm. Um, so as, as as capital comes to seamlessly occupy the horizons of the imaginable, yes. it's nature. Yeah. It's nature that comes and saves us, not the uh, collective agency of the working class. Yeah, no, I think that's that's hits the nail on the head, actually. And but it also speaks to a certain exhaustion. Yes, yes. as well, which I, I think that's probably the most dispiriting thing about the emergence of these. And again, social movements arguing for action and pushing for action on climate change are very important and are Absolutely. to be welcomed, but not in this form. Uh, and, it, and precisely by adopting this sort of post-political uh, kind of form, they, they and the alarmism and all the other stuff that we've discussed, they act, in fact, probably more than anything as an actual roadblock to actual sort of change. 
So yeah. I think that's that's maybe what's most dispiriting about this. Yeah, and the, uh, to the extent that they do um, are articulate, and I say they, this big amorphous they, um, but let's say Greta Thunberg, uh, you know, her, she, in her, her speech to the UN, uh, so f- uh, fuck's sake, Lee, we made, <laughs> we made it about an hour, and, and now you had to do it, you had to mention Greta. <laughs> so, Sorry, who, on, who, who's this we're talking about? I'm not sure I've, <laughs> not sure I've heard about this person. Yeah, so I mean, I neither, um, I neither, I, I neither uh, hate her nor love her, and in, in I have equal contempt for those, you know, figures who dismiss her and seem to have this real, you know, hatred, like profound hatred for her. And then on the other hand, this, you know, the the politicians uh, who sort of, you know, uh, bow before her and think she's, you know, the the second coming of 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 the mother of Jesus. Um, and um, I, I think two things to say about her with respect to this is that um, one, good on her. She's six years old. She's just getting involved in politics. She's um, well done for participating in the grand public democratic conversation. And I would say that about anybody, anybody at that age who is beginning to do this. So well done, Greta. Absolutely. Um, but uh, she's a teenager. I mean, she calls herself a child, but she's a teenager, and she has endorsed a series of policy positions. And I think those, uh, while celebrating her as a, as, a, as a young person who's getting involved in politics is, is fine, there's nothing wrong with us um, uh, taking on her ideas and critiquing them, saying, would that work, would that not work? Are there problems with this, are there not problems with it, in terms of achieving what you want to achieve? And specifically, I would say things like her speech to the UN, where she endorses um, uh, basically degrowth, uh, it was a deeply reactionary Malthusian position. Um, her uh, her opposition to nuclear power um, that is one of the biggest barriers that we have to uh, to rapidly dealing with the the climate crisis. Uh, the um, the you know popular green NGO led opposition to to nuclear power, which is irrational and is not uh, based in in, in 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 science or understanding of uh, energy systems. Um, is uh, needs to be uh, needs to be overcome. Um, it's it is a real barrier to solving the, the problem. And then finally, her 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 stunt, um, her anti aviation stunt, uh, taking a, um, um, a Monag- royal Monegasque yacht um, across the Atlantic um, for an anti aviation perspective, instead of arguing for. Uh, a policy of you know an industrial policy that would take um, uh, synthetic hydrocarbons from um, the you know current proof of concept or your minor commercialization sort of stages through to full commercialization, um, while working with workers in uh, the airline and aviation industry, you know the, the air stewards and pilots and air traffic controllers uh, to, to to ensure a, clean, uh, a just and clean transition. So all, all three of those things, degrowth, anti-nuclear, anti-aviation, they're fundamental um, uh, strategic uh, barriers to, uh, to, to dealing with the, uh, the, the climate crisis. And I think there's nothing wrong with us saying, um, the, uh, critiquing those, the, those positions of Greta. Absolutely. I, absolutely. I think that's very well put. And I, maybe just as a way of wrapping this up, put a, put a final bow on the, on the point about nuclear, which if there is one single silver bullet for this whole discussion, that seems to be the most plausible, reasonable, and pragmatic 
one and, and it's a line that you've been pushing quite a lot Lee, and have definitely won me over even more to that position than than i was before absolutely it's not just because it's a, a firm um reliable and clean source of electricity but it it provides a whole range of other options um covering the or that will potentially help significantly uh with those hard to electrify um um, parts of um, our economy that also needed to be decarbonized. So things like um, a, uh, aviation, long-haul aviation, long-haul trucking, long-haul um, shipping, uh, the role of nuclear in producing cheap, clean, synthetic hydrocarbons using process heat. Um, renewables can't do that. Um, they don't have a process heat sort of um, 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 commodity that they can they can they can they can sell. Um, um, Variable renewables, renewables in general, um, can't help much with the production of clean steel because of the high temperatures. And actually, even many um, nuclear uh, reactor designs can't, but some can. High temperature uh, gas reactors uh, uh, could um, provide the more than 900 degrees centigrade um, uh, temperatures needed for, uh, for for steel production. And if we're going to be building out all of these new um, uh, to solve the housing crisis. And have a you know new housing that is uh, that is optimized for um, um, uh, for, for climate uh, that has you know this much more energy efficient and so on and so forth. We're going to need a lot of steel um, for for the um, to produce all that housing. So that steel definitely needs to be cleaned up. Um, resource extraction in in uh, rural area not rural in uh, remote areas. Um, it's very difficult to build out. Um, um, uh, transmission lines to those places. So those are usually serviced by diesel, rea- uh, diesel generators. Well, instead we could have s- uh, small modular reactors that are competitive with or much cheaper than those diesel generators, in which case we're suddenly cleaning up um, in, uh, uh, industrial extraction processes. Um, so, I mean, nuclear is this sort of um, Swiss army knife that uh, can solve many, many different problems. It's not the whole solution. Um, I think wind is a really great solution in some areas. I think in Britain, wind is playing a fantastic role, partially because it's able to be backed up by firm um, sources of, of clean energy like nuclear in the UK. In other places, um, um, lower, uh, lower latitudes, uh, solar can play a significant role uh, as well. But it's about right-sizing all of the different options, all of the above, uh, please. And... Um, um, yeah, but the, the 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 climate movement, unfortunately, is you know is 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 not is not looking at these. And I think, having said that, having said all that, I do think that uh, more and more people um, are taking a more of a I, let's say an eco modernist approach. And I have my critiques of eco modernism as well, in, in, with respect to its sort of economic understanding. But that. Uh, takes these uh, that takes climate change very seriously, takes biodiversity loss very seriously, takes nitrogen pollution very seriously, and all the sort of allied bio crises very seriously, and say they are real and we do need to uh, to solve these problems. And these are the 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 the, the series of technologies that we'll need to to solve them. And is actually and very realistic about the the scale of the problem, not using alarmism or catastrophism. More and more people, um, particularly young people, um, are embracing that sort of approach. I'm thinking of things like uh, Generation Atomic, which is this new youth-led um, uh, green NGO uh, in the United States and to some extent within Canada. Um, 
bright, uh, bright New Green, I think they're called, out of Australia, which is leading the charge in pushing for adoption of nuclear in, and, and other similar sort of um, uh, technological options in, in, in Australia. And they have been absolutely essential in pushing uh, public opinion from being strongly majoritarianly, uh, strong majority opposed to uh, use of nuclear in Australia to now a, a strong majority in favor of, of nuclear power. So there's, there's some, some good stuff out there as well. And um, I would direct uh, listeners to, to looking out for, for those sorts of, of, of folks and um, inform themselves uh, about the, the options where we get to keep all of the great stuff of modernity and just make it clean. Um, yeah. Excellent stuff. Love it. And I'm glad that you were able to give those shouts out at the end, uh, lest anyone accuse us of being merely critics and cynics uh, on this question, but that, uh, but that we're actually t- interested in talking about concrete solutions for this. And also that we recognize that politics isn't going to come back by raising the alarms about extinction, full collapse, and and no. existential threats, um, but instead will only be brought back through actual class struggle. So we can't hope that climate change politics does the work for us. No, the, and you know, you, if, you know, the, if there's another economic crisis, um, I bet you um, uh, suddenly, um, um, just as happened after 2000, 2008, uh, that suddenly everybody gets focused on anti-austerity politics um, again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you, yeah, again, maybe to, to recap and bring us back to where we started, it's actually amazing and disappointing that we're back at kind of 2007 style politics a decade on from uh, or more than a decade on from from the global financial crisis. Um, but uh, <clears throat> I think hopefully, at least with making these criticisms, we can clear a bit of ground and be clear that these sorts of alarmist politics and uh, and and indeed, post politics aren't the aren't the solution. Uh, sorry, if I one last tiny thing, it's, I would add an asterisk to this alarmism conversation. In that, while if we're talking up to uh, the end of the century, then the the conversation by people like Roger Hallam and so on and so forth is you know it's completely unsupported. It's not the case that six billion people will die. Um, it is, you know, uh, the worst case scenarios would be that agricultural yields would be reduced by t- 10 to 20 percent um, in you know, compared to business as usual in the absence of any new technological change. And, you know, that's significant, but it's not it's not, you know, the end of the world. And even in some temperate regions, the, there there will probably be an increase in, for example, wheat yields. Never, but if we if we look further down the line to 2300, 2500, and we still haven't solved the problem by then, then yeah, we are really, that is getting very, very worrying. Um, the, so there is a, but the irony is that they don't usually talk about that sort of stuff. The, and the reason it's, it's quite disconcerting is that we are putting um, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere at a much faster rate than during, um, you know, out of the, the, you know, the five major extinction events, um, most of them um, are related to significant changes in atmospheric um, uh, chemistry composition, um, including um, um, uh, usually um, uh, uh, greenhouse gas uh, concentrations. If we don't um, resolve this problem this by the end of this century, then there really is some very, very serious um, uh, problems potentially on the horizon. So the irony is that they're both too alarmist uh, with respect to this century, and not alarmist enough <laughs> with respect to the, the much more sort of geological scale of um, 
of the problem. Excellent. Nicely put. Thank you, Lee. Uh, always great to have you on. And in fact, uh, listeners, Lee will be on again soon because we're going to be talking about eco-fascism with Lee uh, a little ways down sure. the line in another episode. Cheers, Lee. No problem.